All right. Well, there's always going to be opposition uh, when you're doing what God wants you to do. As Mike just prayed, you know, the enemy, the evil one is always out there looking to wreak havoc and uh, cause problems uh, in our lives. Uh, if you have no enemies, then you've got a problem. I know that sounds counterintuitive uh, from a human perspective, but if you have no enemies, you have a problem because Satan is the enemy of all that is good and righteous and pure and holy. And, uh, and, and, if, and if Satan and his minions are ignoring you, then you've got to be doing something wrong. <laughs> you know, people think it's just the opposite. You know, you'll hear people say, oh, boy, oh, oh so-and-so must be, must be doing something right because everything's going so well for, for him or for her. Uh-uh, no. If everything's going right for you, you must be doing something wrong. <laughs> Because you have an enemy. That's the news flash for this morning. You have an enemy. Here's another news flash, by the way. There are people who do not like you. <laughs> um, and Satan doesn't like you. If you're a child of God, if you've been born again by grace through faith, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, uh, then you're part of the family of God, and His crosshairs are set straight on you. Satan has two goals in this cosmic battle that has been raging ever since Satan got kicked out of heaven uh, in his attempt to defeat God, take over the creation, and, and be worshipped as God himself. His two goals are to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated. <laughs> so don't think just because you've trusted in Christ and become part of God's army that somehow you're no longer relevant to Satan. Because he can do a lot of damage in this cosmic battle by defeating and discouraging believers, by sort of taking us out of the action, sidelining us, and causing us to set a bad example to others. And, uh, you know, I've said many times there are two reasons that uh, people have not gotten saved yet. The first is they've never met a Christian to share the gospel with them. The second is they've met a Christian. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes that leads them away because of our bad testimony. So all that to say, Satan doesn't like you. Uh, he wants to keep you defeated. And therefore, if you're serving the Lord, if you're walking by grace through faith, if you're walking in the Spirit and not according to the flesh, then people aren't going to like you. Um, it's just a fact of life. In fact, Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So Satan uses people in your life to come against you when you're doing what God wants you to do. In Philippians, uh, Paul, in his prison epistle here, put it this way. He said, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So one of the things we need to remember that we're going to be talking about this morning is that ultimately all of our enemies are tied back to Satan. See, there's only one of two options. Jesus said, If you're not for me, you're against me. So there's God and there's Satan. And as a believer, you're a child of God positionally. If you're not a believer, then you're a child of Satan. You're a child of wrath, the Bible calls it. And so whatever circumstances, uh, situations that you're facing when you have these earthly enemies that are going to be doing the things that Nehemiah's enemies are doing in the passage we're looking at this morning, ultimately it's a tool of Satan. He wants to destroy you and, dis and discourage you. Uh, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. That's what it's about. See, Satan hates the cross because the cross represents his ultimate demise. The cross is where Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave, and it was a pivotal moment in this cosmic battle because Satan thought he had won the battle. You know, he, he brutally scourged and, and beat Christ. He, he hung on a tree. He was 
died, was laid in a tomb, and Satan said, that's it, I've won. But his victory lap was a bit premature, because three days later, the, the stone was rolled away, Christ defeated death, the last enemy, and, uh, and Satan shrieked in horror. And so he's been doing everything he can since then, knowing but not believing that his ultimate demise is set. He doesn't believe that. He's, he's, he just is self-deceived. He thinks some, somehow he can still win. But knowing that, he's still doing all he can in this, in this battle. And, and part of that means that we're going to have earthly enemies. But we need to remember, if they're legitimate enemies, people that truly, because we're walking with Christ, are coming against us uh, for, you know, because we're living godly, those enemies, though it may not seem like it in the moment, are ultimately enemies of the cross. That's what it's about. If you go back to Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, and in this context, Paul is rebuking that unbelieving sorcerer named Elymas uh, in Cyprus. And uh, Luke tells us Saul, who is also called Paul, this is the first time his, his new name Paul is used, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, this is Elymas, the sorcerer, and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Notice that phrase, son of the devil. Again, as I said, positionally, you're on one of two teams. You're either a child of God. John 1.12 says, uh, says, to as many as received him, to, give, to them he gave the power to become a child of God, and that is what we are. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. That's what we are. Uh, or if you don't know the Lord, then you're a child of the devil, positionally. Now, what's interesting is, even as believers who are part of the family of God and positionally in Christ, we can still be acting like a child of the devil. Ever known someone like that? Uh, me too. I keep a list, actually. Um, yeah, of course. And, and we too. We start by looking in the mirror. Anytime we're walking in the flesh, we're not living out that positional righteousness that we have in Christ. We're living like the old man. I talked about that in a podcast I did Friday night. Uh, so enemies come in all shapes and sizes, and certainly they can be unbelievers, like what we're going to be talking about this morning, but they can also be believers. In fact, uh, 1 John chapter 3 talks about how if you're not abiding in Christ, if you're not walking in close fellowship with Christ, you are basically a son of the devil. Not positionally, but in your practice, in the way you're acting. You're not acting like the new man. We can never uh, sin and blame that on the new nature, right? We never can say, oh, that indwelling Holy Spirit, there he goes again, t causing me to sin, you know, leading me to sin. There's that new nature of Christ in me causing me to sin. Never. Sin is never born in the new nature. Sin is born in that old man. And so that's why John says in 1 John 3 that, you know, uh, when we sin, we're acting like a child of the devil. By the way, not only can you be acting like a child of the devil, you can be acting like the devil himself. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. So, I mean, you think you come under the discipline of the Lord sometimes? Uh, at least he didn't call you Satan, right? That, that's pretty serious discipline that Peter was faced there. Peter was clearly a believer, but in that moment of trying to keep Christ from the cross is the context here. Uh, Jesus said, get behind me. You're not an, you are an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. So believers come in all shapes and sizes. I mean, enemies come in all shapes and sizes. They can be from unbelievers, and they can be from believers. But the bottom line is, as long as we live on this old earth, enemies will be a fact of life. Now, notice I said, as long as we live on this old earth, 
because one of the neat things about understanding our the, the world from a biblical viewpoint is that we know that one day all of the enemies will be put under Christ's feet when he comes back. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Uh, you know, death for the believer is the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. It's just, it's, it's just a rite of passage. It has nothing to do with defeat or sadness or sorrow. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, we may sorrow over our believing loved ones that have died, but we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We sorrow because we miss them. It's a temporary separation, but we don't grieve the way unbelievers do. See, death is still an enemy for unbelievers. You know why death is an enemy for unbelievers? Because it's appointed on a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. If you die without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to spend eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. So it's a very serious enemy. But once you've trusted Christ, death is just, it's just, it's nothing. It's completely irrelevant because you've been given eternal life from the moment you place your faith in Christ. Just so happens that our eternal life starts out in this old earth, in this old body, sold under sin. But, but, but our citizenship is in heaven. We're part of the, we're a child of God, and when we die, it's just going from this realm of time, space, and matter instantaneously to be in the presence of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. So death has been defeated is what we're uh, seeing here. By the way, I do a lot of, obviously, a lot of research for writing and, and messages and conference messages and sermons and things, and I, I once saw this verse 26 here, that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. I, I'm always researching quotes and, you know, trying to find unique quotes to cite in books. Someone actually cited that last phrase there, the last enemy that will be destroyed. They, they attributed it to J.K. Rowling in the Harry Potter series. And I thought, are you nuts? That's from the Bible. Paul said that, not J.K. Rowling. Interesting. By the way, I also saw a statement one time where Jesus said that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Uh, so that was attributed in a book I read to Anonymous. You know, we don't know who said this. It's some anonymous person. No, Jesus said that. See, they're rewriting history right before our very eyes. It's unbelievable. But I want to invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4 as we pick up our study uh, through Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew what it was like to face enemies, fierce enemies, painful enemies, harsh criticism. The task he faced was not going to be easy. It was a tough task, like we talked about a couple of messages ago. And it was made even tougher because of his enemies. But through it all, Nehemiah maintained his focus, and he did not allow his enemies to defeat him. He stood firm. What about you? Do you find yourself facing an enemy, doing battle with the enemy? Enemies can be all-consuming. They can be distracting. As you earnestly try to serve the Lord and walk with Him, people are going to come against you. So the question is, where is your focus? And if we learn anything from the account we're going to read today from Nehemiah, it is that our focus needs to be not on the battle, whether that's you know, a person, a circumstance, a crisis, a trial of some kind that we're going through. But our focus needs to be on the Lord and His Word. If your focus is on the battle, then, then you're letting the enemy win. You're playing right into his hand. But if your focus is on the Lord, then the enemy attacks you're facing are, are basically little more than minor annoyances. And, and they don't get you off track. 
So we want to follow Nehemiah's godly example. Nehemiah was surrounded by enemies. We're going to find out that uh, literally, geographically, he was surrounded by enemies. Sanballat was on the north, Tobiah the east. The Arabs were coming at him from the south, the Ashdodites from uh, the west. But very important to note that he also faced enemies from within. Those can be the most painful enemies, can't they, right, that you don't see coming. Uh, I know in our experience, 35 years of ministry, uh, 31 with, since I've been married, uh, we've been in a lot of battles. Uh, you know, I mentioned in the early service that uh, early on, even before uh, I met Wendy, the Lord uh, sort of called me into a, a, a passion for the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. Uh, it's just through a series of events, he just kind of led me in that direction. And so my whole ministry's really been marked by that one driving passion. Yes, I'm passionate about the end times, and uh, that's part of the urgency aspect uh, to the gospel, the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of it. But more than anything else, what drives me is, is, is proclaiming the clear, accurate, urgent gospel good news about salvation in Christ. And so we've seen time and again that because that tends to be my passion, my priority, uh, the devil is just relentless. I mean, he attacks anybody that's doing the Lord's work, as we're going to see, but it just seems like because our ministry, Not By Works, is directly focused on proclaiming grace, the grace message that salvation is free, you can't earn it, Jesus paid it all, that his attacks uh, have been painful. So we've, we've seen it, uh, but in our ministry, the, the most painful ones have come from within sometimes. When people who disagree with something, and it's never about what it's about, and they they come at you. So Nehemiah, same thing was true. The, the high priest himself, Eliashib, uh, came against him. In fact, the text tells us when you get to the end of Nehemiah that Eliashib was allied with Tobiah. He was in a secret alliance with Tobiah. Uh, and then, get this, uh, Eliashib's grandson was married to the daughter of Sanballat, one of his enemies. Boy, sometimes... Extended family and relatives can really be some of your worst enemies, and that, that really hurts sometimes. We've seen that a lot over the last few years, haven't we, with the whole COVID thing, right? You know, you've got families turning against families. You know, you've got family members and extended family members that say, no, I don't want to take the gene-altering bioinjection that's killing people by the millions worldwide. And other family members saying, no, 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 you've got to take this death shot or you can't see your grandkids. You can't come over to our house. We're not going to go on vacation with you. Then you got family members saying, no, I don't want to wear a mask. And other families saying, no, I want, to, I want you to wear a mask. And it's turning brother against brother, just like uh, you know, Jesus predicted the closer we get to his return. And that hurts. That really hurts when you've, when you've got battles from within. But I think what we're going to see this morning is never let the enemy keep you from doing a good work. We have a, we have a task at hand as long as we're topside this earth, a mission as part of the body of Christ, and never let the enemy keep you from doing that. An enemy is anyone who does not believe in what you're doing, doesn't like you, and is trying to keep you from doing God's work. And you don't have to be a minister, uh, to, to or a vocational minister, to be doing God's work. All of us have a job to do. All of us are called to do God's work. An enemy of God's work is ultimately allied with Satan. They may not acknowledge it. They may not even realize they're a pawn in the game. But anybody who's trying to keep you from doing God's work is allied with Satan. So as we go through uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to see, first of all, what to expect 
from our enemies. Now, next time, we're going to camp out in chapter 4 for two messages. Next time, because I couldn't really fit it all in one, we're going to look at how to respond to your enemies. And because we're having a missionary next week, next week it's going to be two weeks. So I'm going to leave you hanging for two weeks with what to expect from your enemies. Uh, but you won't be able to find out how to respond until two weeks from now. But actually, what's so great about being a believer is we believe in the priesthood of the believer. So you don't need me or any other preacher telling you how to respond to enemy attacks. You can go straight to the Word of God yourself and study the Word of God and, and figure it out. So don't hesitate to read ahead. Um, you know, uh, hopefully you're not uh, just get diving into the Word of God every Sunday only. You need to be reading the Word of God regularly. But for today, we're going to focus on five things to expect from your enemies. Now, I just want to read the first 15 verses of chapter 4, and then we'll come back next week and pick up the rest of the story. But uh, picking it up in verse 1, but it so happened that Sanballat, that when Sanballat heard that we were re rebuilding the wall, he was furious and very indignant, and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Then Nehemiah prays, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. So there you have it, a conspiracy theory. Don't let anybody tell you conspiracy theories don't exist. I've talked in my Spirit of the Antichrist books at length about the biblical basis of conspiracy theories. It's all through the Bible. A conspiracy is just two or more people working together to do something illegal or nefarious or bad. Here's a conspiracy right here. And it's not a theory because we know from God's Word that it was taking place. Um, verse uh, 9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is, fa is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. That was their secret conspiracy. They were going to sneak in and, and destroy them. So it was that when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they, that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. So these other Jews overheard this conspiracy, and they came and reported to the Jews in the city, look, and they said it ten times apparently, they're, they're coming and they're going to be everywhere. Verse 13, Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. I love that phrase. When you're under attack, remember the Lord. Great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, 
your wives and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his own work. So what should we expect from our enemies? Number one, your enemies will disagree with you. That's where it starts. Uh, you know, any attempt to fulfill God's desires is almost certainly going to draw opposition from God's enemies because they don't think what you're doing is right. They disagree with you. Someone has said, there's no triumph without trouble. There's no victory without vigilance. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, if you start building, you'll soon be battling. So be prepared. Be prepared. Notice they were furious and very indignant uh, against them. Uh, he, they said, are they going to complete it in a day? See, our enemies are our enemies because they think they're right and we're wrong. They think what we're doing is stupid, and they have this insight, this special wisdom. You can count on the fact that your enemies are going to passionately tell you again and again that you're wrong, that you're crazy. Essentially, Nehemiah's enemies were saying, there's no way you can do this. What in the world are you thinking? You're crazy for even trying to build this wall. Nehemiah's enemies looked at the situation only from the human point of view. They didn't take into consideration that this was God's plan and God might have other ideas. See, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end of it leads to destruction. Proverbs says, the fool is right in his own eyes. Fools always insist that they're right. In the New Testament, we see uh, Jude telling us, these speak evil of what they do not know. These speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts and these things, they corrupt themselves. Your enemies are going to disagree with you. They're going to let it be known that they have an opposite point of view that you do. And a lot of people, that's when they begin to cower. They, don't, they, they like to be liked, right? I like to be liked. Anybody like to be liked, right? I like to be liked, but I like to serve the Lord too. And hopefully, uh, in most, most of the time, I'll serve the Lord regardless of whether people like me. But like anybody, you know, we have our weaknesses. But uh, hopefully you don't cave in after just the disagreement because there's a lot more coming from the enemy. The next thing that he'll do is he'll disparage you. Uh, when they can't win the battle intellectually or rationally or logically, the next thing they'll do is turn to personal attacks. It's one of the oldest logical fallacies in debate known to man. It's called ad homina, where they speak out against the person, where they ridicule and mock the person rather than the argument. And I learned uh, early on, not soon enough, sadly, because I used to, especially early on in my ministry, I used to be bad about employing this technique, you know. It's funny that the, the older you get, the, the more you, you learn to be gracious. You know, when you're younger, you know, everything's black and white, you're right, and anybody who disagrees with you is a complete nutcase and stupid and an idiot. So, you know, you, 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 you try to make the argument, but then you, then you get frustrated and you just start calling names, right? Well, in God's grace, somewhere along the way early on in my ministry, he acquainted me with a, a mentor who really taught me the value of grace and the value of being gracious when defending our view. And so, by no means perfect, I often you know, fall back into the old pattern. But by and large, I've really made it a hallmark of our ministry to be gracious to those that I disagree with. In fact, what's funny is sometimes I get email complaints from people that thought I was too soft on people that I disagree with. You know, Don't you know what this guy believes? Well, yeah, I know, but he loves the Lord, and I disagree with him on this, but I'm not going to personally attack him. 
That's what the enemy does. So be careful about that. We don't want to be taking tools out of the enemy's toolbox. But also be prepared for it. If your enemies cannot win the battle with you rationally, you know, I think you're wrong. No, we're, we're right. No, I think you're wrong. Here's why you're wrong. And they're trying to, you know, to discredit you and to, you know, to, to disagree with you. If they can't win it at that point, then they're going to move on to personal attacks. See it all the time. And that's what these folks did to Nehemiah. They mocked the Jews. They said, what are these feeble Jews doing? How in the world are they going to, uh, you know, build this wall with these stones that have been burned? And, and that day when limestone was subjected to intense heat and was burned, which the city had been burned by the Babylonian invasion, then it's unsuitable for building. You can't use it. In fact, back in that day, if they'd have had, uh, you know, uh, building uh, commissions and uh, county building uh, uh, inspectors and permits and those kinds of things, you'd never be able to build a building out of stones that had been burned, right? Uh, and so that's what they were doing. They were mocking them. And look at what this guy said, Tobiah. He said, look, this wall, that they're, if even a fox goes up on it, it's going to fall apart. It's going to collapse beneath them. You know, foxes are not that heavy. Foxes are fairly small animals, kind of light on their feet and adept. And, you know, uh, you know they, they, he's saying, look, this thing that they're building, it's not going to be worth anything. They're going to disparage you. They're going to mock you. And believers today face the same kind of ridicule. Uh, Peter said, Speaking about unbelieving Gentiles here, he said, uh, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. See, they're under conviction on some level. Remember, Paul said in Romans 2 that even their conscience is bearing witness to them, even though they'd never admit it. And so they're going to do everything they can to try to get you to come along to their side. Come join us. Proverbs talks about come join us to lie in wait. Come join this, you know, this bad thing that we're doing. Be one of us. And the more you hold your ground and stand firm on the Word of God, then they're going to start speaking evil of you because they couldn't get you into this flood of dissipation. Uh, and by the way, this idea of disparaging you, this has a corollary to the church in the area of gossip. And I just want to take a moment to give a quick excursus on that because through the years, I've, I've seen more than anything else, gossip will really begin to hurt a church. The tongue is, is powerful. James put it this way, no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God, the image of God. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing, and my brethren, these things ought not to be so. And so I just want to encourage you as part of the family of God, a part of the local family at Plum Creek, watch out for gossip. Someone comes to you telling tales, talking about, oh, did you know what she did or he did, or digging up dirt from the past, or trying to, trying to just be critical. Uh, you need to put them in their place. Uh, you know, the tongue is a powerful uh, weapon. It's, it has the power of life and death, and certainly our enemies know that, and they have a very sharp forked tongue, frankly. But sadly, when we're catering in the flesh, even the body of Christ can be guilty of uh, turning on people. So when Nehemiah's enemies began to mock and ridicule him, what did he do? Well, he prayed uh, once again, like he always does. And this is Nehemiah's famous imprecatory prayer. What's an imprecatory prayer? You see them all the time in Psalms, Psalm 44, Psalm 70, Psalm 74, Psalm 79. 
whole series of them in there. An imprecatory prayer or an imprecatory psalm is when, and I, and I love it, and if you've never thought about this or heard this before, you're going to love it too. It's when you pray to God and say, will you tear my enemies up? Will you pour out hellfire and brimstone on my enemies and destroy them? Do you know it's okay to pray that? It is. We see it in Scripture. And this is what Nehemiah prays right here. Now, before you pray an imprecatory prayer, you need to make sure that you're doing the work of God, you're right with the Lord, and these enemies truly are enemies. Because, you know, sometimes God puts believers in our life to give us constructive criticism, to help give us wise counsel. And if you're not walking with the Lord and someone comes uh, along and, and is just trying to help help you see the error of your way, you know, imprecatory prayers aren't going to work. God's going to go, uh, nope, uh, they're my instrument. But if it's a true enemy of God, and they're coming against the work of God, and that's the key, it's not about you. It's about God's God's work and God's word. Man, let them have it. Uh, let them have it. Pray these imprecatory prayers. Listen to what Nehemiah says. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. By the way, he's not talking here about uh, spiritually. Anybody can be forgiven if they'll simply trust in Christ. Uh, this wasn't a, about a spiritual thing. It's it, the consequences of their sin. Don't forget what they've done, God, to you, God. Uh, for they have provoked you to anger uh, before the builders. See, there's an important principle in Scripture called vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And we sometimes think of that in the context of not retaliating and taking matters into our own hands, and that's part of it. But the other old side of vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, is that Vengeance belongs to God. Let him do what he wants to do when we're coming under an attack by his enemies. So there's nothing wrong with this imprecatory type of prayer. God, go get them. My enemies are coming against you. I'm trying to faithfully proclaim your word. I'm trying to faithfully proclaim the gospel, and these enemies are coming against me. God, get them, and get them hard. Make them hurt. I mean, that's what the, the Psalms say, right? Uh, it's very similar to what Jeremiah prayed. You know, in Jeremiah's day, as the Babylonian exile was happening, the people of Judah uh, in Jeremiah's day didn't believe that their lives were about to change radically because they refused to follow God. They didn't believe they were about to face God's discipline. They didn't believe what Jeremiah was telling them, that they were about to be carried off into exile. Uh, they thought Jeremiah's prophecies were wrong, and the false prophets were right. And there were several uh, plots, by the way, in Jeremiah's day to, to shut him up and even kill him. People hated Jeremiah because he brought bad news and convicting news about repenting and turning back to God and, and following him, which the people didn't want to do. So the people were really rejecting Yahweh, God, by rejecting uh, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah in chapter 18 here becomes aware of this plot to kill him, and so he goes to the Lord in prayer about it. And this was no mealy-mouthed prayer. Uh, this was no, you know, love your enemies prayer. We'll get to that in a second. He asked God to rain down calamity on them. Listen to what Jeremiah said. Lord, you know all their counsel which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Same idea as Nehemiah. But let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. You're angry at what they're doing. Let them see it, right? Vengeance 
is mine. And so if we go back to Nehemiah's prayer, Nehemiah based his imprecatory prayer on God's promise that he was going to bless those who are following his word, and he's going to curse those who curse God's people, going all the way back to his promise to Abraham. Believers always need to consider prayer not as a last resort when we are facing an enemy, but as a primary weapon against our enemies, especially the enemy. So he prays, Lord, give them as plunder. The sins of Nehemiah's enemies were committed by not sneering at Nehemiah, that's what it looks like, but Nehemiah understood because he was doing a work of God, he was doing a good work, that they were really sneering at God. That's what they were doing. So this prayer was not because Nehemiah was insulted or the Jews were insulted. It was because God's work was insulted and God himself was insulted. So God called on Nehemiah. God had called Nehemiah and his people to do this work. And so Nehemiah calls on God to let these enemies have it. He was asking God to take vengeance, which, as I said, is God's job. Let God do his job sometimes. And it's okay to ask God to do what he promised in his word to do. And so we see then in verse 6, so uh, the, we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together, for the people had a mind to work. Your enemies are going to disparage you. They're going to mock you. And when you have a mind to work, then that, that ridicule is not going to be as distracting. And speaking of distracting, the third thing we can expect from our enemies is that they're going to distract us. See, it's never about what your enemy says it's about. When the personal attacks fail, the next he's just going to try to distract you from the issue at hand. Again, we see that they became very angry. Uh, as I said at the outset, they were the Jews were surrounded geographically on all four uh, points of the compass, and they conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem. We talked about that, uh, and to create confusion. Remember. God is not the author of confusion, and there are only two options. If you're not with me, you're against me, Jesus said. So it's either of God or it's of the devil. If it's not of God, who's it from? The devil. That's right. And so this time, you know, he says, nevertheless, we made our prayer to God. So what's interesting here is this time Nehemiah didn't just pray, but he also took some practical action. He set a watch against them day and night. So one of the applications that I see from this is that ridicule can be countered by prayer alone, but armed resistance, armed attacks, armed conspiracies against you need both prayer and physical defense. Let me, let me say it another way more directly. Sometimes prayer is not the only weapon we need. That's where understanding the whole counsel of God is clear. There's nothing wrong with physical defense when someone is doing something at the behest of Satan and coming against God, doing something. If they're trying to murder you, if they're trying to rape you, if they're trying to hurt you, nothing wrong with it. In fact, Jesus told the disciples the night he was betrayed, look, who, he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Well, you don't hear that teaching of Jesus taught very much by the woke progressive left, do you? So yes, Jesus said, love thine enemies, but he also said, pack thy heat, right? I mean, you need both. There's a time for both, right? When conspiracies are against us, forming all around us, stay focused. But do the things that are necessary to protect yourself from the enemies coming against you. Oliver Cromwell, that 17th century 
English statesman and military leader said famously, trust in God, but keep the powder dry. Keep your powder dry. Proverbs tells us, don't be distracted. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Don't turn to the right or left. The enemy's going to try to distract you. And then the next thing that we can expect from our enemies is they're going to deceive us. If distraction doesn't work, or even after they've already distracted us, then they swoop in with just outright lies, both to you and, by the way, about you. They don't mind making up things about you to try to discredit you, and, and again, as part of the distraction. So that you spend your energy defending yourself rather than doing what work God has called you uh, to do. Uh, I used to get caught up in that a lot, still find myself occasionally slipping back into that, but the older I get and, and the wiser I get in terms of studying God's Word, I, I've, I'm trying to learn when people try to accuse you falsely, don't even engage. Just move on. Stay focused. Let God fight the battle uh, because uh, deception is a pretty formidable foe. Uh, so the enemy is going to start to outright lie. This is what we find in our text. They, they will, the adversary said they will eat, neither know nor see anything. In other words, we're going to sneak in deceptively. And, and they won't even see us coming. Uh, and then we're going to try to kill him, as he goes on to say. So, but notice the first part of that verse there in verse 10. The strength of the labor, Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. We're looking around, there's so much rubbish, we don't think we're going to be able to build this wall. So not only was there external opposition from the Jews' enemies, but the Jews themselves were becoming discouraged. You know, well, I guess so, Right? They'd been uh, disagreed with. They'd been distracted and disparaged. It can be pretty discouraging. And the enemy took advantage of that discouragement and that exhaustion to just deceive them. So there's a valuable lesson here. The more we face attacks, the more susceptible we become to deception because our spiritual, mental, and physical defenses are down. Remember, we are a bipartite being, immaterial and material, and they're all wrapped up together. Proverbs makes that clear. A biblical anthropology makes that clear. That's the reason when you're tired, you don't think as well. You don't think as clear, right? Um, you know, the last two or three weeks, you know, we've literally collapsed into bed at the end of the day because we've been dealing with so much of this flooding and the hail damage and contractors and appointments and estimates. And it's just like I'm, I'm in my office. My office is outside. I'm in my office Working, I have a little uh, uh, on-air light that lights up when I'm on an interview or podcast or something. And no sooner does that light go off, people are knocking on the door. Hey, we want to know what you want to do here. And what do you think about this? And someone just showed up, Dad. Can you come out? And it's just like, go, 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 keeping up with everything. And then at the end of the day, you're just exhausted. And that's precisely the time the enemy comes in because it's so easy to take advantage of that exhaustion and try to deceive you. And I think that's what Nehemiah's enemies were doing because deceit, Proverbs tells us, is in the heart of those who devise evil. So these evildoers that were trying to keep God's people from doing God's work moved in with lies and deceit. Paul tells us that evil men and imposters are going to get worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. He says that in the latter days, People are going to give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy. Paul says even within the church, there are those who don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. So your enemies will try to deceive you, but ultimately and finally, 
Your enemies want to destroy you. That's what they're trying to do. The longer you withstand the enemy's attacks, the angrier and more determined he becomes to destroy you. As I said at the outset, Satan thinks he can win this battle. He thinks someday he's going to have this world for his own. And for seven years, he's going to succeed. He's going to use the Antichrist and the false prophet to preside over a one-world system, politically, religiously, and economically, after the church is rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. And for seven years, it's going to be all hell breaking loose on earth as God's judgments begin to be poured out on the earth and, and Satan's wrath is also being poured out on earth. But his regime will be short-lived. In the grand scheme of 6,000 years of human history, it'll be a seven-year period. And then Christ comes back triumphant and he destroys the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist and the false prophet, casts them into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan's final demise is still a little bit ways off after that. He gets put in prison for a thousand years, but then he's set free where finally Revelation 20 tells us he is cast into that same lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. And he too is tormented day and night forever and ever. But until then, he's trying to destroy us. He's called the destroyer, Apollyon, right? And a bad. And, and so uh, the longer we withstand the enemy's attacks, the anger and more determined he becomes. And that leads us to a, a, an age-old principle, never underestimate the enemy. Shakespeare put it this way, "'Tis best to weigh the enemy more mighty than he seems." Never underestimate uh, the enemy. Nehemiah, we read that our adversaries said they will neither know nor see anything, that's the deception and the conspiracy, till we come into their midst and what? You know, have a stern discussion with them? No, no, they're past that already. They're coming to kill. In fact, uh, when the Jews that didn't live in the city heard this plot developing and this conspiracy forming, uh, they came and ten times, the text tells us, they told Nehemiah and his team, look, from wherever you turn, they're going to be upon you. They're going to be upon us, God's people. They're serious. The enemy is serious. He wants to kill you, right? That's why Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus himself said the thief comes to steal, kill, and what? To destroy. It's one of the oldest principles of conflict. Never underestimate the enemy. So what should we expect from our enemies? And we're going to leave it here this morning, and then next time we'll come back to chapter 4, finish the chapter, and talk about how we can respond to our enemies. We already see a taste of that this morning, didn't we, with the imprecatory prayers. Now, everybody's going to go out of here today and start praying imprecatory prayers. Just be sure <laughs> that the person you're praying them for is truly an enemy of God. You know, you can't just, you know, someone criticizes you the color of your shirt, you can't just go, Lord, rain, rain down hellfire on them, you know. We'd like to do that, but I don't think that measures up to the standard. But what can we expect? We can expect our enemies to disagree with us, to disparage us. There's a progression here. Then to distract us so they can deceive us and ultimately uh, destroy us. So before I give you the takeaway today, let me just interject. If you're here today or you're watching on live stream and, and you don't know the Lord, then whether you realize it or not, you're on the enemy's side. You're a pawn in the enemy's game. You're on the enemy's team. You're a soldier in the enemy's army. First step is to trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation so that you can be 
adopted into the family of God and you can become part of God's army, right? And so if you haven't done that today, let me encourage you, today's the day of salvation. And in simple childlike faith, trust in Christ as the only one who can save you. For those of you that are already on the Lord's side, remember, we have an enemy. There are people who don't like you. Satan doesn't like you. And he's going to do everything he can to distract you and ultimately try to destroy you. Don't let him win. So here's the takeaway. Don't expect everyone to like you, especially if you're standing on the principles of God's Word. So make sure you're standing on the principles of God's Word, number one. And then if you are, you know, let it go. Uh, someone said to me after the first service that whenever they're uh, facing an enemy, they, they said the first question they ask is, how do I perceive this person? Whenever they're facing attacks, like in their workplace, how do I perceive this person? Make sure you know who it is before you react. Sometimes it could be a servant of the Lord who is painful as it can be, you know, a faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? That's what Proverbs says. Who's just trying to encourage you and give you counsel. Uh, we need to be teachable. But once you've determined that they're an enemy of God, not you, of God, uh, which makes them an enemy of you, then uh, keep standing firm and let God deal with it. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together this morning. We love you. We thank you for the, your word, rich as it is, for giving us everything we need for life and godliness. We do pray that you'd protect us from the evil one, the enemy, as Mike prayed at the outset of this uh, message. And we pray that you would give us strength and grace to be able to withstand all that's uh, coming our way. Help us to examine our hearts and make sure that we're walking by faith and not by sight. Make sure that we're in the spirit and not catering to the flesh. And uh, we pray all this in Jesus' precious name.